All right, our kids can head back to be with our children's workers in Transformation Station. And for the rest of us, I hope you're as excited as I am to begin our new series that we've titled Work Reimagined. So this will be a four-week study we'll begin today and uh, plow through the next uh, three weeks, all, every Sunday in the month of February. So I hope you'll continue to be here and also invite maybe some coworkers and neighbors uh, to explore what maybe our work could and should look like in light of God's plan for it. Well, it's just a guess, but I suppose that 99% of you absolutely love your work, right? I mean, you, you wake up with this aching feeling, this aching joy that you cannot wait to be at work so that you can perform all of your tasks with excellence, please your wonderful boss, and continue those great relationships that you've established with your workers, co-workers, day by day by day. I'm sure that you all just really love your work. But maybe there's the other 1% that could identify with some statements like these. These are just a few that are, I think, a little fun that we can enjoy this, this morning. So uh, someone said, hard work never killed anybody, but why take the chance? I like that. Uh, or how about this one? I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit it and look at it for hours. Like that? Or what about this one? I only go to work on days that don't end in Y. Like that? And then the comedian Steve Allen puts it candidly, all I ever wanted was an honest week's pay for an honest day's work. How do you like that? So, so whether, you, whether you love work or whether you hate work or whether you're probably somewhere in between those two spectrums, we all understand that we spend the majority of our waking adult lives at work. We work more than we sleep. We work more than we probably even have time to spend with our friends and family. The Work and Family Researchers Network, based at the University of Pennsylvania, have done some studies, and through a series of studies, they found, listen to this, that 38% of Americans say they work more than 45 hours a week, with 12% of those eclipsing 60-hour work weeks. Thus, it's not surprising in the same uh, study that they found one-third of all U.S. employees can be viewed as chronically overworked. And we get this in Boston, right? I mean, we are a hard-working city. You won't be surprised that through uh, a series of, of, of statistics from the, the census and the uh, U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor and uh, even the, the Center of Disease uh, Control and uh, Protection, they found that uh, the cities that need of, of the cities that need a vacation, Boston ranks near the top of the list. Can anybody identify with that? Because we work so much and because work is intrinsically so important to us, it doesn't matter if you're white collar, blue collar, green collar, a student, you stay at home with the kids, whatever your vocation may be, work raises some of life's most difficult and challenging questions, right? Questions like these, will I ever find fulfillment in my vocation? 
Why is work so frustrating? How can I get out of this dead-end job into a job that I really would love and find more and more fulfilling? Why am I not excelling in my work? Do you ask questions like these? Tough and difficult questions related to our work. Listen, some people view work as as this kind of meaningless chore. You just in and out, punch the time clock, and it's almost just a means of survival. It's a means to an end, a paycheck. That's really all work is. Other people conceive it as a necessary evil, right? A necessary evil that that's more like a thief that steals away the best of our time and emotion and strength and skills. Those are some popular views of work. But even, even as Christians, even those of us who are you know, familiar or somewhat familiar with the Bible, we can sometimes reduce work to merely being about displaying morality and how we interact in the workplace. Or maybe it's about furthering social justice or um, making as much money as we can so that we can be generous to others. And then, of course, let's not forget about a workplace can be also a place where we might have an opportunity, just maybe, you know, to to share our faith with others. So sometimes we we even reduce our work down to, to those levels. But what I hope will happen as we work our way through this series is that we can correct some of these misunderstandings of our work as well as enhance the ones that we should be applying to our regular work weeks. And so what we're going to do as we think about work reimagined is we're going to consider why work matters. We're going to ask some questions like, why on earth would we, could we, should we wake up in the morning, get out of bed, and actually find some really significant motivation to engage in our work? Is there a larger purpose behind some of the very small and narrow purposes that we often kind of confine and box our work into? And I think that the Bible is going to teach us that God has a huge view, a huge plan for our work. And we're going to begin where the Bible begins this morning, Genesis chapter 1. So if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, it'll be really easy to find. It'll be on page 1 of that Bible. And we are going to look, actually not cover every single verse, but we're going to hit the highlights of Genesis 1 through 3 with a specific emphasis on what God is saying about this idea of work. As we study these three chapters, uh, I believe that Genesis 1-3 through is going to teach us that our work matters to God and is truly fulfilling as we connect our work to God's work. So we could put that in the form of an encouragement and say something like this. Find fulfillment in your work by connecting it to God's work. Find fulfillment in your work by connecting it to God's work. Now, how do we do that? Well, we we need to start with understanding who God is. So number one, understand that God is the God who works. 
Genesis 1 through 3 uh, sets the trajectory for our understanding of the entire Bible. We cannot understand the first three chapters of the Bible well enough because it has every piece of the overarching meta-narrative, we could call it, of Scripture. And we're going to see that as we work our way through today, beginning with this God who is creator and the God who works. Look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4 to begin. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, we are not going to read all the way through chapter 1, but we can already catch in these opening verses that God is a God who works. He is a God who, who creates. And he creates by his will and by his word. This is amazing. We have to exert a lot of energy, right? A lot of kind of physical energy, mental energy to, to get a task done. God simply speaks and he creates out of nothing. This is the picture of Genesis chapter 1. Theologians call it creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God speaks and it comes to pass. And not only is this how God works by his word and his will, but, but what he does is good. Six different times throughout Genesis chapter 1, it says that God's creation, God's work is good. And in fact, in verse 31, if you'll flip there, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So it's as if God creates in six days the world that we have made, this world teeming with life. Everything in the heavens and the earth, God has made for his purposes, for his glory. And he steps back and he says, wow, what, what, a, what a beautiful creation that I have made. God worked and his work was good. It was very good. And then in Genesis 2, we even have the language of work pop up for the first time in the Bible. Look at verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, let's pause here because we may assume if we just stopped reading in Genesis 2, 3, that God works six days. On the seventh, he rests, and then he kind of enters into this perpetual rest. Now, if we keep reading as we're going to, we're going to find that that cannot be further from the truth. And of course, as we read throughout the entire Bible, we see that God is not a God who is dis disconnected from the world as, as maybe this, this understanding, this deistic understanding would maybe lead us to believe. But God is a God who is intricately involved in every detail of the world that he has made. So God worked six days. He rested on the seventh as a great example for us. But God is a God who is always at work. 
This is what Jesus says in John 5, 17. He says, my, my father is working now and I am working. The NIV says, my father is always at work and I too am working. So, so God wears, if you want to picture it this way, the ultimate hard hat, all right? He, he is always at work and, and he is always working perfectly according to his will and according to his plan. If you want to learn how to do better work, get to know God. God shows us what true work, lasting work, beautiful work can and should look like. Now, we see this all throughout Scripture, and one of the ways that we see it is in the names of God. Think about some of the names that we got. Even Early on in the Old Testament, we see that God is Jehovah Jireh. That means the God who provides. That is part of how he works. He provides for his people. God is Jehovah Rapha. It means the God who heals. God is healer. He takes the, our brokenness, not only our physical brokenness, but our, our emotional, our spiritual, our mental brokenness, and he heals us. He restores us. That is part of how he works. God is Jehovah Shalom. You need peace? God is the God who gives peace. He extends peace. And to get out of kind of the Hebrew language for a minute, God is Savior. He's Deliverer. He's Redeemer. He's Protector. He's Shepherd. He's King. God is Friend. God is the God who works. And God reveals himself not only through his word, as we have in the 66 books of the Bible, but he also reveals himself through his work. In other words, God displays who he is. He displays his character by his works. And this should cause us to stand in awe of him. It should simultaneously captivate us and humble us at the same time. And this is what David is saying in Psalm 8. Listen to the first four verses. You can follow along here. David writes in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why is that, David? Well, you have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Do you see this picture? Perhaps David, who is a shepherd, is out in the fields at night and he is, you know, not really, you know, he doesn't have that light kind of pollution that we experience in greater Boston. So, you know, we can see a few stars, you know, at night, but, but David can see, you know, thousands of stars in the sky and he's considering the work of God's hand and it simultaneously makes him feel really, really small. And at the same time, it makes him feel really, really significant. Why? Because God has made him, as the psalm continues, a little lower than the angels. In fact, and some, uh, an understanding is that, that, that we are made, as we're going to see, in the image of God. So God is the God who works, and God is the God who works for his glory. Why, why did God make all that he has made? It's wrapped up in profound mystery. We can't understand everything about the mind of God. But we do know that God created for his own glory. Everything that he made, every tree, every blade of grass, every cloud in the sky, 
it shouts, it speaks of the glory of God. And that's why he made us as well. So that with our lives, we would point to his greatness, that we could be a reflection of who he is. In the words of Colossians 1, we were created by him and for him. So if we're going to understand what our work lives can and should look like, we have to begin with the God who works. Genesis 1 shows us. Now, that brings us to our second point. The second encouragement for us is to fulfill our design to glorify God through our work. Look in verse 26. We'll start in 26 of chapter 1 and then get to 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the, gra- on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So not only is God the God who works, but God is the God who works and makes us in his image. Therefore, we can understand that we were also made to work. If God is a working God and we are made to reflect him and to be like him, then we are are people who are made to to work, to engage in the assignments that God gives. This understanding of being made in the image of God gives both dignity to our person, who we are. That's why we trumpet the value of every human life, no matter where it is found, in the womb, all over the world. We value every human life and... Not only does every human life have value and dignity, but our work also has value and dignity because we were made in the image of God to display Him. Which means that really what Genesis 1 into 2 is pointing to is that our work should be a form of worship back to God. If we said that God created everything for His glory and He made us to to work for His glory, then that means that we with our lives should reflect him and point back to his greatness, to his existence and his greatness, to to show how bright and how beautiful and how awesome he is. This is what Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Perhaps you know this verse. He says summarily, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So here's the, the, the sad part, okay? We, we sang earlier, you remember this? We sang, may our whole lives be this blazing offering back to God to show how great he is. But here's the sad part. We, we usually do that in part, right? Not only kind of a, a daily kind of micro scale, but even, even kind of the, the larger scale of our lives. We often live our life as if it's a trip to... Target, okay? Think about, think about Target, a department store, right? This is, this is how we kind of work out our Christian life and our work life. And, and so, so we go to Target, and, you know, we walk into the store, and, and, and some people might be kind of captured by the cosmetics and the beauty, okay? That's not me. It's like, hey, pick me up, you know, this and this, and I'm 
going to the electronics here, or you know, maybe the sporting goods, or maybe the clothes department, or maybe you need to pick up some food, some snacks. And so you have all of these different sub-compartments in this larger department store, and this is kind of how we often organize our little worlds, right? We have kind of our spiritual lives over here, at least, hopefully, at minimum, kind of consisting on Sundays, and if we kind of get together with friends through the week, maybe in a community group, whatever. So, so, so here's our spiritual lives. This is part of our life. But then, you know, when we, when we go to work, when we, when our commute to work, we kind of detach that over here, and we compartmentalize our work as if God doesn't have anything to do with our work life. And the Bible just doesn't leave any room for that. All of our life, all of our work should be to God's glory, to light him up. So we are after integration, not compartmentalization. We want to integrate our faith and work, and and it should influence every little minute that you are in the workplace. We have spiritual, as those made in God's image, we, we have spiritual personal, moral, rational, relational, emotional, and creative capacities unlike anything else in creation. Someone has once humorously said, you can't put a couple of hamsters in a room and see them make a computer. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We're made in God's image. We have all of these capacities to, as verses 28 through 31 will tell us, Take what God has made and and develop it for his glory. Look, Look in verses 28 through 31. It says that these people, man and woman, that he has made, it says that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, there is a lot in verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then even more specifically to to this idea of work, he says, subdue it and have dominion over it. Now, this does not mean that we have license to misuse and mistreat the world that God has made, the environment, okay? It's not saying that at all. What it's saying is is this idea of subduing the earth. It speaks to to cultivating and developing out of the raw materials that God has put. We're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks, but taking these raw materials and and cultivating and developing out of this world that God has made. So this is actually why, as Christians, we should also speak to environmental concerns. We should should be green, all right? You know, if you want to kind of get in those camps, you know, we should should care about the environment. We should pick up trash. We should recycle. You know, we should should, uh, pursue energy conservation, all all these things. Why? Because we care about the, the world God has made. It's a good world that God has made, even though it's fallen, as we'll see. And and so we still care for it. We're still concerned about it. We still want to to take the world God has made and and use it for his glory. So 
Now let's move down to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. To continue this idea, it says there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work and to keep it. And then he says to the man, he commands him, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what does God, why does God place Adam in the garden? He places him there to work and to keep the garden. The NIV says to work and to care for the garden. So we are, we are co-cultivators with God. We have these creative capacities to exercise, this rationality to exercise, relationality to exercise, spirituality to exercise. You get the point, right? And we're made in the image of God. We're made to work. But let's not miss in all of this that all of this is going on before we get to chapter 3. So, so what does that mean? We're going to look at that in just a moment. But, but, but what it means is that work is not a necessary evil before the fall and sin enters into the world. Work is not a necessary evil, but it is a part of God's good creation that we are to engage in. Work was part of Paradise Found. Okay, consider this, the, the overarching story of the Bible. Work was part of Paradise Found, It is a tainted part of paradise lost today. And it will be a part of paradise regained. Okay, so that's kind of a fancy way of saying, you may have not thought about this, but we will work forever. In the Gospels, Jesus says that part of the rewards of heaven are not just a lot of gold, you know, to kind of stuff in our pockets and walk on streets of gold. You know, God says that rewards have to do with service. That part of our reward in heaven will be the opportunity to work and to serve God and others in the new heavens and the new earth. So because God enjoys his work, we can also find joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in our work. And this whole understanding that that God made us to work explains some of why when we're out of work, have you ever known, maybe you've been there, maybe you're there now, maybe you know someone who has been there. When we are out of work, something feels a little off, right? Maybe something feels a lot off. You know, like people, when they're out of work for a season, they, they can tend to slip into depression. And why is that? It's because God made us to work. God made us to, to, to fulfill responsibility. Work is a basic need of humanity, as much as food or water, or air, or companionship. And when we're not working, we're like a fish pulled out of water. I want you to think about this image. A lot of times we, we view work as this restrictive, confining arena that is just debilitating, you know? I mean, you've even heard people say, you know, hey, I'm going to the prison today, you know? It's like, you know, this is my work. This is what my work is like. And maybe sometimes it feels that way. But, but work itself, however, you know, good or bad your work environment may be, work itself is not meant to restrict you, work is actually meant to free you. Just as a fish cannot function and live outside of water, so we, if we are not working, are going to be missing part of God's intention for us to find fulfillment in life. 
God is a God who made us to work. And we can glorify God through our works. So some, some of you may be saying, look, you know, hey, that's, you know, I, I get that. But you know what? I'm, I'm not really interested in glorifying God in our work, and that's understandable. We're about to see that really clearly in Genesis 3. But, but, but let me just pose this thought to you. If you would say, man, Tanner, it's okay, it's good for you. You know, you're Mr. Preacher, read the Bible a lot, and you're about, you know, this whole glorifying God in your work thing. Um, I, I would just say to you, even if you're kind of not on board with that yet, that, that according to what Genesis 1 and 2 are saying, that, that you actually in some really cool, mysterious way, or an argument for the existence of God every time you go to work. Why? Because God made you to work. And ultimately, he wants us to glorify him in our work, which takes us to chapter 3. And and, and really what we need to get here is, is this. This is the encouragement. Realize you were made to work, not for work. You were made to work, not for work. Let's read Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. It says this, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, shifting blame, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is what theologians refer to as the fall. This good world, this very good world that God had made and created us to live in, to to love him, to serve him, to know him, to glorify him, to reflect how great he is with our lives. Adam and Eve rejected that plan. Okay, so what we have in Genesis 3 is not a mistake. It's not like an, oops, my bad, you know, kind of thing that, that we kind of often, you know, this is, 
This is defiant rebellion against their maker. Leading to a cataclysmic fall from the world that God intended for them to live in. And the results could not be more dire and destructive. Sin enters our world, bringing the curse. Part of the curse, as we will see, is death. And on top of this, the fall affects everything. Everything. Nothing in our lives is untouched by or untainted by sin, including our work. So, so now we come to verses 14 through 19, and we start to see how this plays out in our work lives a bit. So, so pick up there. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now, after the fall, our work becomes frustrating. Our work loses the fulfillment that God intended for it in the beginning. Our work is now described with words in the Bible like toil and thorns and thistles and sweat and pain. And so I want to attack this kind of from, from two angles here, okay? As we understand this fallen world in which we work. Uh, first, I want us to consider how work fails to bring ultimate fulfillment because of the fallenness of our world. And then I want to address something even personally deeper than that. So number one, work in this fallen world. Okay, we said that work is not a, a result of the fall. It is influenced by the fall. Everyone got that? We're on the same page? Work is a gift, but it's tainted, influenced in a negative way by the fall. And we see this in so many ways, countless ways. Here are just a few. Work can become a drudgery, right? So, so this work that we were once so excited about, this work that we had so much hope when we filled out the application, we thought this job was going to bring so much satisfaction and fulfillment, now becomes this joyless duty that we have to do day after day after day after day. Work can become so monotonous that it's painful. This is part of the result of the fall. Number two, work can be tainted by the actions of others. We understand this, right? That, 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 that a workplace, no workplace is perfectly just. It's not perfect. God is not the boss of any of our corporations or even churches for that matter. And so there is going to be probably in some level, some, to one degree or another, injustice. So therefore, you have things like favoritism, nepotism, lazy. 
Work hard when the boss is looking-ism. Cut the corner-ism. Why don't they do their job well-ism-ism? You know what I'm saying? Because our work is tainted by the actions of others, by the, by the sinfulness of others. And so we have to, to deal with that on a, on a daily basis. And then number three, work can also be frustrating and meaningless. There, there may be some of you, let's just kind of pause and reflect. There, there may be some of you that would say, you know what? It's Sunday, and if your work week begins on Monday, that, that it's almost dreadful, miserable for you to get out of bed tomorrow morning and go to work. It's that bad because of the fall. Work becomes a primary source of stress. According to a survey conducted by National Life Insurance and Co- Company, four out of ten employees state that their jobs are very or extremely stressful. So work can be stressful. On top of that, we, we often don't get everything we want to done in our work. So we have these awesome ideas and this task list a mile long, and, and, and sometimes we are unable to, to get things done because of our environment, because of circumstances, but also sometimes because, you know what, we're just not that good. You know what I'm saying? We're just not that good. We, we, we don't have the ability to do everything that we want to, and work becomes frustrating. Man, I thought I had the skill for that. I thought I could get that done. I don't need someone else's help. Work becomes frustrating and even can become meaningless. So that's work in this fallen world. But let's go a little bit deeper than that. It's not simply because we're fallen that that work is, is sometimes so frustrating, but it's because we are fallen. We are fallen. We are the issue. And we turn this good thing that God has made into an idol. Work can become idolatrous. An idol is any good thing that we cultivate into an ultimate thing or a God thing. And work certainly can fit in that category. And then our work becomes this false God that, like any idol, always overpromises and yet underdelivers. So how do, we, how do we see this in our work? Well, uh, number one, work can become selfish. We work, what, we, we work for the value that work can give us. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we show up to work, we do our thing, not to serve God or our neighbor, but to serve ourselves. Work is a means to the end, and we are the end, right? So it's about, it's about how I can look good in the sight of others, how I can gain power and a reputation. It's how I can make more money than the next person. It becomes a mean of boasting and self-glorification. We see this just a few chapters later in Genesis 11, the Tower of, of, of Babel. Why did they make this tower? Is simply put because they wanted to make a name for themselves, not a name for God and his glory. So work becomes selfish. Number two, work becomes supreme. We love our work so much that it becomes our God. And this is a word that we need to hear as Bostonians, as Americans. Here's the irony. We live in the land of freedom, but we are more enslaved to our work probably than any other country in the world. 
In an article in the Journal of Management, Wendy Boswell and Julie Olson Buchanan write this. To get ahead in the job, this is probably specifically speaking of management, but it applies across the board, down the chain, a 70-hour work week is the new standard. What little time is left is often divided up among relationships, kids, and sleep. TechCrunch did a study that says 80% of 1,000 U.S. workers surveyed work after leaving the office. Listen to these stats. The study found that people check their email in bed in the morning 50% of the time. Before 8 a.m., 68% of the time. After 10 a.m., 40% of the time. When they are out with their families, 57% of the time. And when they are at the dinner table, 38% of the time. 69% of those surveyed said they can't go to bed without checking their email. All of this amounts to actually an additional day's work on top of the other work week. Now, let me say, I want to apply John's sermon from last week, and I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because I love my phone. And I often check my email before I get to work. It's like, you know, devotion time, like, can I just kind of work that in, Lord, just like my email just a little bit? Isn't that kind of some kind of devotion here? So, so it's like in the morning and, and then, you know, after work and then the dinner table, worst of all, I have been in that percent at times, God forgive me. And then before I go to bed, we're addicted to our jobs. And why? For, for what purpose? How do we fight back about, against being a workaholic? Let me just give a few practical encouragements here, and, and, I, and I, ho- I hope and think they're biblical. Uh, number one, hit a priority reset. So, so, so make God supreme. Make, make God the object and the affection of your worship so that he is your treasure, not work. Because here's, here's the great thing. When our worship is right, our work will follow suit and be right as well. Number two, practice po- proper boundaries. And, and as much as possible, leave work at work. Let's stop mixing our family and our personal lives with our work lives. Number three, learn to say no. This may mean having some hard conversations, making some hard decisions, but the one thing that I'm learning as I work more and more and more, is that I can't do everything and I don't need to do everything. You know what I'm saying? There, there are a lot of things that I could do that I need to allow someone else to do, not only because, for my own health, but for the health of, of the church, the health of life. Because, because actually, you know what? This is a shot to the pride, but you know, they could do the job better than I can. And so we need to learn to say no. We need to learn to give away responsibility. And then finally, we need to schedule rest. Did you, did you see? In chapter 2, God works, and then he rests. And he commands us, part, part of the Ten Commandments is to, to observe a Sabbath day, a day of rest, so that we can rest, recuperate, worship God. God didn't make us to work incessantly. He made us to work and rest, and that should be the rhythm of our life. You know, take a vacation, it's, it's February, like, so go ahead and have the conversation tonight. Schedule vacation for the summer or whenever it is that you want to get away and get into a better work-rest rhythm. 
Because here's, here's the great danger. When, when work becomes selfish and work becomes supreme, then work can become our identity. Work becomes the controlling, the ruling factor in our lives. Our thoughts, our emotions hang on our work week. How many of us, when someone comes up to us, even on a Sunday, it's kind of the end of the week, and so it's, an, it's a great time to ask the question, hey, how was your week? And just almost reflexively, we answer by giving an, a recount of our work week, right? It's just what we do. What does that say about us? It may say that work is supreme and that work has become our identity. Maybe our first response should be something about our family, about our friends, about what God's doing. And I mean, I'm not saying, hey, look, you know, work is a, is a key part of, of life, and there may be some things to talk about and to share. I'm not saying that that shouldn't be the first answer sometimes. It's, God cares, right? But if it's always the first answer, then maybe we need to evaluate if work has become our identity where now our self-worth rises and falls with how we are getting things done and how people approve of us at our work, how many stars are in our cubicles. And what Genesis 1 through 3 wants to teach us is that our work will never bring us ultimate satisfaction. And why is that? It's because God did not make us for work. He made us to work. God made us for himself. I love what Augustine says. He says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So, so what's the solution here? It's, it's already laid out for us in Genesis 3, verses 20 and 21. We'll stop right here. Look at this. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made, listen to this, the Lord God, after the fall, after defiant rebellion, after all the curse has been laid down, God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What does this mean? It means in spite of our sin and in spite of our rebellion and in spite of our idolatry, God takes the first step to us to give us his grace so that our work can be restored back to his glory. So let's receive God's grace to restore meaning to our work. I think we would all agree that we all probably, in a variety of ways, need to work on our work. Right? Our work lives are not perfect. We don't have it all together. We're tainted by the fall, both in the world and in our own souls. And so, so how can we work on our work? Here's, here's, the, here's the key. We work on our work through God's work, through the finished work of Christ. Only God can reorder our delights and desires and make us worshipers of him so that we are no longer worshiping our work, but we are worshiping him. And then he is enabling us and empowering us to do excellent work for him and his glory. 
And so what I want to do is pray, and I'm going to invite the, the guys to come back up. And I just want to, I want you to ask the question, is my identity in my work or is my identity in Christ? What is it for you? Is, is, is work a source of, of just huge frustration in your life? Or, or are, you, are you finding satisfaction because you are worshiping God and you are working for his glory? Let's, let's pray together and ask God to show us where we are. God, we pray that you would help us to think rightly about our work. God, starting with you, who is the God who, who works. Lord, would you, would you teach us and, and, and show us how that our, our work lives can be renewed and, and we can reimagine what work can and should look like. But God, most of all, would you, would you even as you show us that, that, that we don't have it all together, would you, um, would you restore worship in our hearts by your grace? God, I pray for those who are, who are absolutely frustrated with their work, who feel like they can't get out of bed in the morning. God, I pray that you would enable them to, to look to you and find grace. God, I pray for those who may feel enslaved to their work. They just love it so much that it's become a false God in their life that ultimately can't deliver what you alone can deliver. And so, God, would you, would you free us, free them from this wrong worship that they might worship you. So God, would your grace abound even now as we respond in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.